0: going to have another very interesting show. We have invited back Sam Daly Harris, who is the author of Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government. He is also the founder of Results, which is enjoying one of its anniversaries that has been around for decades at this point, making a difference in bringing about the healing of this rift that his book is about, and a lot of the work that Sam has been doing for a long time now to allow this government, to help this government actually be democratic, and to have the voice of the people heard through the different means that government uh, opens up and allows in a democratic state. Sam is also the founder of the MicroCredit uh, <clears throat> Summit, and he worked very closely with the Nobel laureate uh, Muhammad Yunus on the subject of microcredit, which is bringing small loans to people, especially in developing countries, especially women who I remember have a uh, some 97% payback rate, unlike men in the same given localities, interestingly enough. And as a result of this microcredit, uh, Dr. Yunus, through the Grameen Bank and with the work of Sam Daly-Harris and others, have been instrumental in helping to build local communities and economies. So he's been up to some very powerful work for a long time on behalf of other people. Interestingly, having begun as a musician, a percussionist for the Miami Philharmonic, where he began his career and since then has moved on to exactly the kinds of activities I've been describing here. And a lot of it has to do with a new uh, a new organization that he has founded, which we'll get into some details of as well. And just to give you some idea, that uh, former President Jimmy Carter said that this book, Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, provides a roadmap for global involvement in planning a better future. End quote. That gives you some idea of the reach that Sam Daly-Harris, our guest today, has had over the past number of decades in bringing about a healing of this rift and making much forward progress in several domains since. Sam, a pleasure to have you back on A Better World.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: I'm so glad. So you have been at this for some time. You have had some rather astounding results from your work in results. Could you share with our audience a little bit about what some of those results were that you find to be uh, significant?
1: Well, you know, we had actually some really good news very recently from UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund. Results volunteers started lobbying in 1984 on child survival issues when UNICEF was reporting that 41,000 children around the world under the age of five were dying every day from largely preventable malnutrition and disease, things like measles coupled with malnutrition and dehydration and diarrhea brought on by not washing hands and the like coupled with malnutrition. The latest report from UNICEF came out a couple of weeks ago, tells us that the 41,000 a day – deaths under five around the world has now gone down to 16,000 a day. So from 41,000 to 16,000 a day, it's still a, it's profound. scandalously high, but it's clear that it's going in the right direction. And results volunteers in the U.S. and, frankly, in about five or six other countries have lobbied on this year in and year out for over 30 years. And so that's an example, you know, I think if you walk out on the street and you ask someone kind of how's the world doing in a normal week, last week was a little not so normal, but in a normal week, you know, they'll say something about going to hell in a handbasket and have no Mm -hmm. clue, you know, about like the dramatic drop in child deaths around the world. Over the last thirty years, as one example. Yes. So, so yes. you know, let me give you one more. When we started lobbying in the mid, this is volunteer citizen lobbying, really in a country where most people feel hopeless about this. When we started lobbying on basic education, UNESCO, the UN uh, fund for education and scientific and cultural uh, affairs told us that 150 million children around the world of elementary school age were not in school. And so the latest number is that the 150 million elementary age kids not in school is now down to 58 million. Now, it's crazy that 58 million kids of elementary school age are not in school, but it's also heartwarming to know that that's almost 100 million fewer than some 30 years ago. So the progress is being made. You could say it's going a little too slow or a lot too slow, but it's there. And, it's, and you know, the, the other thing I just want to mention is come September, the Sustainable Development Goals will be announced at the UN. Uh, following the Millennium Development Goals, these will be a set of goals for the year 2030. And I'm expecting that the new goal on child mortality will be that it should go to zero preventable deaths Mm -hmm. by the year. Now, is it guaranteed? No. Will we uh, make it on the trajectory we're on? Mm, I don't think so. Is it Mm -hmm. possible? Absolutely. What's missing? Citizens to speak up. Mm for what, the, what mm-hmm. their priorities are. If I could say one last thing, and because I, I, it ties in... Oh, I want you to the, say the more theme. than that, but I do want to deconstruct yeah, what, a few of the things that you well, brought one, up. I just want to say one on. thing. The The main themes from the book are, one, most people feel hopeless and cynical about making yes. a difference with their voices as <clears throat> citizens. I mean, I'm sad to say it, but it's true. Yes. Number two, for the last 35 years, I've seen... People make a profound difference with their voices as citizens on issues they care about. And number three, which is the hard one, if you want to make a difference, you have to find an organization that gives you more than mouse clicks. An organ- Now, nothing wrong with mouse clicks. I just don't say don't stop there. Yes. An organ- organization that offers a deeper structure of support. So you might say you walk in one foot tall as a citizen activist, and after some months, you know eventually you're walking out of the meetings and, and the uh, the uh, the support, three or four or five feet tall, and growing yes. kind of thing, yes, because most organizations keep their members in kindergarten. Click here, sign this petition, you're done that's kindergarten it's important. Kindergarten's really important but it's still only kindergarten, and we need to go beyond that. Do you
0: have – what you're bringing forward here, Sam, is – I mean, I think it's beautiful, I think it's inspired, it's creative, and it's brilliant. So from the outset – and I've said this, I've had you on several times, you know that – and it's because I think your work is seminal, to tell you the truth, and I have quoted – Uh, you and the book on the air many times. So, make no mistake that I feel your work is bountiful and substantive. And I also want to say that it is occurring inside a context that is very troubling, and everyone would agree on that, and uh, yet, Uh, You know, I think the other, you know, the yang side of that yin statement, if you will, is that it's also fertile with possibility for the creative being to do something with. You know, so I, I want you to know I'm aligned with much of the inspiration and hope that you provide so many people as a result of results, as a result of that organization, your newer organization, and we're going to tick through some of these, but I want to bring up, uh, first of all, in the context of UNICEF um, and the lobbying since 1984 that you referenced, was it legislation that actually changed the number Mm -hmm. of children dying, or was it
1: uh, policy of UNICEF? What, what was well, it that let,
0: was being yeah, for?
1: It, it, the, Let me. I'll tell you that in a moment, but um, uh, let me tell you this story that relates to that, and then I'll answer that question. Uh, a year sure. ago, I had the honor of speaking at an elite university, and before the lecture, I had a 20-minute meeting with a esteemed professor of organizing, brilliant guy, and uh, he'd never heard of results or Citizens Climate Lobby, the group I'd coached. And it was 20 yes. minutes of, why do you do it that way? And how do people respond when you ask for that? And at the end of 20 minutes, he looks at me and he says, yeah, but Congress is really dysfunctional. I said, yeah, Congress <laughs> is really dysfunctional. And last year it appropriated $1.65 billion dollars for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. I said, Congress is really (laughs) dysfunctional. And last year it appropriated $715 million for maternal and child health programs around the world. I said, Congress is really dysfunctional, but if you roll up your sleeves, do your homework, and get in there, you can make some big things happen. And so the answer to your question is, we were lobbying both on unicef and unicef funding its annual appropriation also on a thing called the child survival fund which morphed from 0 in 1984 into what's now the children uh, maternal and child health program which is 0 to 715 million a year and so it was mm. lobbying on uh, things like uh, annual appropriations and Sometimes it's legislation where actually that's what's going on, about to be introduced, some new legislation on making some uh, new progress on child mortality and the like. So it's both legislation and it's also the annual appropriation not just for UNICEF, which is important, but for m- Maternal and Child Health and other related programs yes. that get at Okay, so you're, you could say you're doing double
0: work. On one hand, it's congressional and getting funding for the organizations that you believe in uh, based on policies that you believe in and support, and the yeah. other is working with the organization when you do coaching Uh, Directly to help them uh, bolster their own revenues toward these aims and these goals.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay. If I could could
0: just. Thank you for that that
1: clarification. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just take a moment and talk about my route in from hopelessness and musicianship to <laughs> hopefulness Please, and Please, it's a activate. fabulous story. I love you. Yeah, it. Yeah. And I think, you know, if it's anyone's it's listening that's inspiring. not heard it before. Yeah, so I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in music, and I played percussion instruments in the Miami Philharmonic Orchestra for 12 years, and I taught high school music. And then uh, 35 years ago this year, I started results an anti-poverty lobby, and a lot of times it's like, what? What was that about? What was your motivation? And when I look back, there are a number of events that come to mind. And I graduated from high school in 1964. And at the ceremony, I played timpani in the orchestra, obviously. And the flute player came back before the ceremony and told me that a high school fraternity brother a year younger had died the day before in a tractor-trailer accident in Georgia. It was her next-door neighbor, so she knew before I did. Well, Mm -hmm. I was 17, and when I was 17, I, I thought I had forever. I mean, mortality was an irrelevant concept. But during the mourning period and the funeral, and I went with his younger brother after the funeral to collect my friend's report card from his homeroom teacher, it began to dawn on me that maybe I had 17 more months or years, and, and, and the questions of purpose came up. Why am I here? What am I here to do? Four years later, 1968, college graduation, Robert Kennedy's assassinated the night before. And it's another one of those what is this life? What is this death? Why am I here? What, what, is, am I what here does to it all do? mean? Yeah, yeah, no answers, but great questions now. Truly. Nine years later, I'm a little slow. I go to a presentation on mm-hmm. Ending World Hunger put on by The Hunger Project. And I go mm-hmm. into this thing as a musician, thinking, well, hunger is inevitable because there are no solutions, because if there were solutions, somebody would have done something by now <laughs> well what yeah. do i know i'm a musician so i go into sure. this thing and almost immediately it's obvious if you know you kind of think about things that act an eighth of an inch deep immediately it's quite obvious there's no mystery to growing food there's no mystery to basic health or basic literacy or any of that basic stuff mm-hmm. i'm not hopeless <laughs> about the perceived lack of solutions as i thought I'm hopeless about human nature. People will just Mm. never get around to doing the things that could be done. But there's one human nature I have some control over, my own, and my questions. Why am I here? (laughs) What am I here to do? So I get involved in a big way, and this is the end of the story. In 1978, 1979, I speak to 7,000 high school students on ending world hunger. And before going into the first classroom, I read some statements calling for the political will to end hunger. It's from the National Academy of Sciences and from Jimmy Carter's Commission on World Hunger. So I asked 7,000 high school students one question. What's the name of your member of Congress? I don't want to know if you met him. I don't want to know if you wrote him. (laughs) Just the name. You know this story, but fewer than 200 could answer correctly. Fewer than 3% could answer correctly. Just over 97% could not. And results grew out of this gap between the calls for the political will to end hunger on the one hand and the lack of basic information on who represented us in Washington on the other. And if I could just update this story, a year and a half ago, I spoke on 15 college campuses 35 years later. It's the LBJ school at the University of Texas the Hubert Humphrey Institute at the University of Minnesota, uh, Overland <laughs> College, I asked the same question. What's the name of your member of Congress? This is college now, not high school. 35 years later, 10% can answer correctly. 90% still can't answer correctly. Mm. And so, you know, uh, you know, from my point of view, at some level – it, it, it's not really gotten better in that regard. Now, of course, there are, I'm beginning to coach organizations to train the skills of democracy that we seem to not have learned in middle school and high school and college. Yes. So, anyway.
0: That, you see, it's all how you look at the statistics, as any statistician would tell us, Sam. So, mm-hmm. from one hand, yes truly from high school to college so it's not apples to apples but you will also see from three percent to ten is you know more than a tripling of that piece of very important information so let's discount a little bit for for the time passage meaning uh you know from high school to college and a little maturing uh but there's still an increase but you could also look at from the larger picture that that is terribly sad that people, high school and college, are so disengaged. And this is one yeah. of the powers of what you have been doing since you put down the timpani. You've been raising, actually, <laughs> you've been drumming a lot since, but in, yeah. a, different, in a different mode. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's very impressive. I want to go back to... Um, this notion, first of all, that it's not known. In the second example you gave of UNESCO, of the drop of students, uh, elementary school students, who went from 150 or so million down to 56 million or so. And that is a very impressive piece of information. So one of the questions we want to ask is, what are the media channels that are going to be interested in publicizing that piece of information. We know that we don't find that on the standard, commercial, conventional news channels that most people are plugged into, unfortunately, almost 24-7. But in reality, on what you would call alternative news, alternative media, you will get that interest in that kind of information. You know, to wit, if you don't mind my saying, here in A Better World. And I welcome that information. So thank you for sharing. But
2: yeah, could you brilliant. comment yeah, because I, you've
0: been interfacing with media uh, as well as government? Because as they say, you know, media is the is the fourth pillar of government, the fourth branch of government. So what could you? What should our audience know about this?
2: Well, let me
1: say it this way: uh, in 2007. A volunteer from Results, his name is Marshall Saunders, uh, called me up and he said, I saw an inconvenient truth on climate change three times in 10 days. And then I went to Nashville and I was trained to lead the slideshow and I went home to San Diego and I led it 43 times. And early on, I realized I was giving people 98% the problem and 2% what they could do about it and that they couldn't buy enough Priuses or change enough light bulbs to make up (laughs) what the government was or wasn't doing. He said, "I actually, one day I was reading the San Diego Union-Tribune, and I read that Congress had appropriated $18 billion in fossil fuel subsidies, and I'd gotten 18 light bulbs changed that day. This is never going to work. So he asked me to coach him on uh starting Citizens Climate Lobby. Last October, it turned 7 years old, and now this gets to your question on media. Yes. Last year, Citizens Climate Lobby volunteers in the US and Canada had 2253 letters to the editor published, up from 36 published in 2010. Mm. Last Mm -hmm. year, their volunteers in the U.S. and Canada had 291 op-eds published, up from 20 in 2010. So this Mm. is ordinary citizens, most of whom had never had a letter published before they joined CCL, who are doing what you're asking about. They're getting it into the media by dint of their own studying the, the structure of support, that a group like Citizens Climate Lobby or Results and others that I'm working with have begun to offer their volunteers so that they can get these issues raised in the media. So that's part of the, you know, it's like if you walk into an organization one foot tall, part of getting us to three feet, four feet, five feet, six feet tall as activists is you know exercising our our muscle with the media and our ability yes. to begin to in some sense change what's published and what's focused on what's heard media. that's right yeah that's right
0: well i I very much appreciate that, and the citizens climate lobby is uh a group that we uh i interviewed the director for global strategy joseph Robertson yeah. Uh, just about four or five weeks ago, actually, oh, okay. and um, I didn't realize what I—I I think I actually uh, referenced you in the in the interview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone they should yeah, right.
1: speak with. <laughs> yeah, I so I cooked them for seven years and stopped about a year ago. For no. seven years from their from their inception, so right, I yeah, guess yeah. I
0: felt you in the uh, in the midst, which is great. No, yeah, there you uh, go, and then so. Here's an example, again, of, uh, you know, this is, you could call this a a, a relative brilliant success. Now, of course, the citizens' climate lobby has a presence at COP21 in what was just Bonn, Germany, and soon-to-be Paris to formalize a global um, position paper, if you will, on uh, you know, on nation, on nations' uh, actions, because that's really where what it all kind of uh, boils down to. Um, so, you know, the work is, of course, in process, in progress, and it's ongoing. But it's very clear the type of healing that you're engaged in. And I want to get back to that, but I also want to bring to bear an article prior to this uh, this conversation that I had emailed to you that was yes. published of, of Princeton and Northwestern researchers. Here's Ivy League who declare that what we have in the United States as our operating government is no longer meeting the criteria of what defines a democracy but rather an oligarchy. And the Koch brothers have become so popular that even the famous Lincoln Center has one of its main halls, one of its main musical auditoriums renamed the David Koch Center. And we know that they're making per minute what most people do not make sometimes in a lifetime. So we have economic disparity so severe that they are able to essentially commandeer a large section of Congress, either directly or through their numerous uh, organizations, allowed through Citizens vs. United and through Alec, which is uh, you know an un, a somewhat under the radar uh, kind of organization that is working on federal, state, and local levels to essentially engineer uh, legislation that is onerous to the common good, and it is uniquely beneficial to the corporate good. In light of that article, and the good efforts that you've been making, and successfully in many respects, mm-hmm. where does that leave us now? Where where are we actually legally
1: positioned? Well, I mean, the question is what now, what do we do? In other words, I would say... Yes. Exactly. That, that article on that report is accurate, but it's accurate because we allowed it to be accurate. Or said another way, you know, if there are 12 or 14 Republican presidential candidates and maybe four or whatever uh, kind of on-the-radar candidates on the Democratic side. Your governor side. signed up today, this morning, by the there way. There you go. Well, but the point <laughs> is um, – and each of them had hundreds of millions in ads – it's only because we're asleep that the ads work. In other words, if you know, if some if they're putting some cockamamie idea out on their high-financed ads and we were awake, we go, this is nonsense. You got to be crazy. This is not accurate. But because we're asleep, it works. And because we're asleep, um you know you can say that we have an oligarchy not a democracy and who's going to turn that around who's going to change that you know it's kind yeah. of we saw the uh, enemy and he is us kind of thing yeah so <laughs> right. uh you know so that's what i'm doing in my uh new organization the center for citizen empowerment and transformation i'm working with a group like the peace alliance whose main piece of legislation is the Youth Promise Act that would fund violence prevention programs in communities around the United States. But the important thing is they're developing a structure of support so that volunteers could wake up and go beyond kindergarten and really take that issue and other issues eventually uh, forward um, from I'm working with the group, Friends Committee on National Legislation. Uh, Their key uh, staffer just got off the road, visited eight cities, and started their first seven or eight groups, their FCNL uh, advocacy teams. The issue they're focused on, because I insist that a group focuses and not do two months of this and two months of that and two months of another thing, Their main focus is repeal of the uh, 2001 Authorization for the Use of Military Force, AUMF, that's allowed President Bush and President Obama to just, well, do whatever they want militarily because of this open-ended AUMF uh, authorization. uh, Instead of of declaring war, they can still still do do an eam job. Military but interest. the Congress right. did it in 2001 and left it open-ended, so now any right. president is free to just go for it. And the point is, and while the issue they're working on is critical, uh, what's also important is that they're developing this structure of support so that volunteers who join these groups, uh, you know, I think some 50 already have on this first trip of starting their teams, uh, you know, can again be empowered and coached beyond kindergarten to third, fifth, twelfth, ninth uh, grade, and beyond, kind of thing. And so, uh, uh, another group that I'm coaching is the U.S. Fund for UNICEF. And they're at a, um, a beginning level of their own work, too, kind of thing. But um, so, what I'm trying to do is wake up organizations to the fact that they could offer their members more and their members, some of them, want more. And let me tell you this one story. I was, I have this list uh, that's titled NGO, Non-Governmental Organization, NGO Attitudes That Kills Citizen Empowerment and Transformation. And I got my list from talking to NGO leaders. And so <laughs> a year ago, I'm in the U.K., I'm at an NGO, non-governmental group, that has 700 staff in the head office. I'm talking to a dozen of their campaigners, uh, and I put my first two items from my NGO attitudes that kill citizen empowerment and transformation up on the screen, and a woman says, that's us, that's us. Number two, that's us. And number two, which I'll tell you in a moment, I'd gotten from their sister organization in the U.S., and it read, "We can't have our volunteers write letters to the editor and op-eds because they'll get it wrong and misrepresent the organization." Like that's, <laughs> what, what, what's that? A paraphrase is we're going to muzzle our volunteers. Yeah. So I said, to, I said to the person who said this to me, I said. Well, yeah, if you give them a kindergarten curriculum and then you ask them to write a letter to the editor, they'll get it wrong and misrepresent the organization. But if Mm. you give them something richer than that, they won't get it wrong. And then this staffer in the U.S. said, well, we have 15 media staff in the head office. They do the media. I said sure they do the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, USA Today. But who's doing the Salt Lake Tribune or the Miami Herald where Congress is? Nobody's doing that. And that's where the volunteers would come, come. in. So it's it's almost I had the honor of meeting Hedrick Smith recently, the New York Times Journalist and editor from sure. years ago, and he has yes. a book out a couple of years ago called "Who Stole the American Dream," and this links to your question about that Princeton Northwestern uh, study. study. Uh, in his book, Hedrick Smith talks about Lewis Powell, the uh, the Supreme Court justice and that two months, and Lewis Powell was a corporate lawyer, he was a lawyer for tobacco companies, etc., and Lewis Powell, two months before Nixon nominated him to the Supreme Court, uh, wrote a memo, uh, a memorandum, some call it a manifesto, that he sent to the, uh, the uh, Chamber of Commerce. And basically, it was oversimplified. It said, you know, corporations are getting clobbered, by uh, movements of Ralph Nader on on, uh, consumer issues and by uh, the women's movement and by uh, other movements, and corporations need to up their game. They need to have lobbyists in D.C. and they need to have think tanks and they need to have uh, a a bigger voice and presence on campuses And so in this memo from 1971, he's kind of, how do I say, you know, bolstering corporations to get involved. And now what I just said to you, I've got these NGO attitudes that kill citizen empowerment and transformation, which are urging their members to get quiet, in a sense, and so, my Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation is really about waking up NGOs to how they can empower and wake up their own members. Understood. Understood. Yeah.
0: You are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and occasionally throughout the week at different times, such as this. We are speaking today. To the author of Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, Sam Daly harris Sam is also the founder of Results going back to 1980 and is the more recent founder of a new organization called the Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation. Which is a lot of what we're discussing right now. If you do not yet receive our weekly free newsletter, a Better World newsletter, please go to our website, www.abetterworld.tv. That's a and sign up for it. It's illuminating, it lists the different shows we have on every week. Uh, a Better World Television on Mondays at 7 p.m. in Manhattan. Also online, it's uh, webcast and, of course, A Better World Radio every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So, please be sure to join our A Better World family. This is the kind of information we love to share. A very, actually, broad swath of information, because from a larger, synthetic, and holistic point of view, you can see how all of the threads tie together to form really what should be a very beautiful tapestry. So Sam, you are very much part of that tapestry and I really, really admire what you're doing and what you've been doing for a long time. I never heard you play music, but I have a feeling that it is as uh, (laughs) impressive as what you've been making music about in uh, the world of politics, and more than anything, standing up for a staunch advocate of the human spirit and possibility, because that's the, uh, the theme I see running through all of your work, including right up to the Center for Citizen Empowerment and Transformation, I'd like to uh, ask you to utilize uh, what you teach, because there's a system in place that is, first of all, you orient people very much, it should be said to all of you audience members, that from the problem to the solution. It's like a doctor who just keeps talking about all of the details of the cancer and all the different little uh, places the nodules have spread and have taken shape and not talk about how to free the body of all of them. And you have really very appropriately um, and very elegantly if I may say, moved us from overemphasis on the problem and much more emphasis on the solution and for which you know many of us are, are deeply grateful and why you are such a good candidate for our show here at A Better World. I'd like to ask you, I'd like to pose this and see how you would uh, answer this. Currently, we are facing what I feel to be um, a foreboding piece of legislation tied in with another one which has already passed Congress, both House and Senate. That's fast-track. And that is the foreshadowing and being uh, voted on, was being voted on in light of the upcoming uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership and actually a couple of other similar types of what are called uh, inappropriately trade agreements, sort of like NAFTA and CAFTA and the rest of those. Uh, This would change life here in the United States rather significantly, if gradually. Uh, We don't know if it would be gradual or not, but the law would state that uh, a sovereign judicial global body, essentially, of corporately selected uh, lawyers would have jurisdiction over all of our, our entire judiciary branch, on all levels, state, local, and federal uh... it's a daunting uh... agreement and many are fighting it tooth and nail and many are going for it it's one of the few times you'll see obama and the republicans getting along it's a very interesting um, unholy alliance from my point of view but what i'd like to hear you say and i've done a number of shows so my audience is pretty well tuned in and boned up on on the specifics of the partnership could you give us an idea of how you coach people who are part of an organization, and there are many that are vehemently opposing both Fast Track and, as including Ralph Nader's organizations and the um, subsequent TPP? What would you advise organizations to do to step by step
1: have their voice heard? in a meaningful and effective way? Well, if I could just say this first and then go to that more directly, um, I would urge them to check into some of the groups I've worked with and see what they're doing. Uh, I'm going to give you an example of what what they're doing. But results.org is uh, focused on global and domestic poverty. Results saw the TPP as such a negative on things like um, medicines in poor countries, generic yes. medicines, that actually it you could say looked away from its focus on poverty issues to do some mostly mouse click stuff on uh, TPP against it, basically. But mm-hmm. uh, CitizensClimateLobby.org dot org will get people there. The Peace Alliance dot org will get people. There, FCNL—that's Friends Committee on National Legislation.org. org, will get people there, and what you want to look at is like the different pieces of their structure, and this gets to the answer. So one mm-hmm. thing they do is they have a monthly conference call. So in Russ Results's case, you know, if the focus is global poverty, it might be that Paul Farmer, the head of Partners in Health. Might be a conference call guest one month, and maybe it might be Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia another month. And so, all around the country, there are volunteers in groups of four and six and eight and ten uh, in their own city uh, on the phone together with people all around the country. I mean, I'm guessing CCL has l- well over a thousand every month on their monthly conference call. So, one mm-hmm. of the pieces is most groups, if they do a conference call or webinar, it's pretty wonky and pretty boring. And it's pretty Mm -hmm. bump on a log kind of thing uh, that that you just listen and there's no time for questions. We ran out of time. And you really want to engage people. So another piece of that conference call, which kind of gets to your question, like what's some of the methodologies? Another part of the call is what we call grassroots victories. Shared on the call, but you don't share it from the victory. Oh, we met with our member of Congress yesterday. It was a blast. We can't wait to do it again. You don't start there. You start from the struggle. Uh, it took us eleven phone calls to get this appointment. I mean, we almost gave up actually, and then we finally mm. got something. We had to meet with the district director first, and then two months later, we had the meeting finally with our member of Congress. And it was a blast, and we can't wait to do it again. But the point is, you have to start with the struggle, so that people all around the country, who are probably in their own struggle and with the media or with the Congress or whatever it is, can yes. kind of tune in with you, and then travel with you to your through your victory kind of thing. Yes. Um, and tell the whole, whole story from beginning to end.
2: Yeah, of from the ugly to happened.
1: the. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And right. Right. I mean, most groups wouldn't even bother having grassroots victories on the call. I mean, grassroots victories. I don't mean the organizational victory, but grassroots victories every month. So that's another mm-hmm. key piece. Another key piece is a segment of the call where people can learn to be more articulate. Maybe it's a role play of a call yes. to an aid, not the switchboard maybe, but the aid that handles trade issues. Uh, maybe yeah. it's a little, we call it a laser talk. Others call it an elevator speech. What's a mm-hmm. little your little laser talk or elevator speech on TPP kind of thing? Because if mm-hmm. you've got it, you can use it in the meeting with the congressperson. You can use it in the call to the aide. You can use it in your letter to the editor. I, I don't mean it's the only thing you'll say. But you you, yeah. you don't have that I don't know what to say thing going on because you've actually learned a little piece of information that's critical yes. to this. So yes. these are some examples. Now, another would be you know, that the leaders of these groups, now it kind of, basically it starts with starting groups, so that people aren't acting alone in Louisville or alone in Albany or alone in Pittsburgh, but they are with a team of four others or six others or ten others, and, and that the leaders of these groups get together each week for a coaching call. So there's a real structure of of support and of training so that people can um, succeed and go beyond the mouse click. Yes.
0: I Another piece that you articulate in your book is uh, the getting together in Congress and a meeting setting up scheduling meetings with yeah. uh, representatives or senators. And another point that I remember you're making is that you cannot assume that your senator or your congressperson is familiar with a topic that you want to no. help no. educate them about. In fact, you really should take on the role of educator, of Absolutely. subject that is at hand. And that's a very interesting, I don't want to say role reversal, but it is a a really interesting new vantage point from which to approach the whole subject. Sort of, i.e. subtext. If they only knew how serious this issue was, they would certainly be taking a more active role in promoting and doing the change. And I like that. It's a very generous uh, yeah. Point of view, and I think sometimes it's very accurate. Um, yeah. So I appreciate that. And so, in other words, the whole point is you're really making a call to people to stand up as citizens and activate that incredibly important role, as Thomas Jefferson yeah. said: "the the the price of freedom is eternal vigilance." And this, yeah. you could say, Sam, that you're. Beckoning us toward is something in the domain
1: of eternal vigilance. Yeah, I mean, uh, Apollo astronaut Rusty Schweikart said, We aren't passengers on spaceship Earth. We're Mm -hmm. the crew. We aren't residents on this planet, we're citizens. The difference in both cases is responsibility. If I could tell you this quick story, also last year I spoke at Rutgers, the state university in New Jersey, and before the lecture I met with students. They were sitting at tables, and I'd go from one table, and they'd introduce themselves, ask a question, I'd go to the next table. I get to the last table. The last student says, I'm in an honors futures class with a view to 50 years in the future, what's the most important issue we could work on? I said, well, my friends in climate change tell me if we don't deal with that, we're toast. And my (laughs) friends in campaign finance reform tell me if we don't fix that, nothing's going to change. And my friends in global poverty tell me it's a blight on humanity. But for me, (laughs) the most important issue is why so few of us see ourselves as changemakers. If yeah. we could fix that one, there'd be this barrage of people coming into all of these issues and more. And so, you know, that's my call, that people yeah. listening in, wishing, hoping, discouraged or whatever, that they could ever be a changemaker, is that's what's needed. And then you, yeah. maybe you're going to go group shopping and you'll maybe you'll shop at Citizens Climate Lobby or Results, or you'll shop at Friends Committee, or you'll sh- yeah. you know shop at the Peace Alliance, but find right. a group that feeds you, not we, mouse clicks only, but feeds you much more than that, where you walk out six feet tall, but you walked in one foot tall as a citizen activist.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I I actually want to ask you a particular question, even though that was a beautiful uh, kind of uh, venue mole here. I appreciate it. And that is mouse clicking, which is so popular and so easy. And, um, you know, it's like the... uh, au courant way of being an activist, you know, internet activism. Mm-hmm. Do mm-hmm. you know what the ratio is? Like, there's one ratio of one call to some 2,000 people. If you call Congress, each time any of us calls Congress, it was... Tabulated, as I understand, Sam, and please correct me, that that one call represents fifteen hundred to two thousand people. If you write a hard letter with a postage stamp, that represents you know three thousand people. If no. you send an email, that represents you know whatever eight hundred people. Do you know what the hard stats are on that? You
1: know, I don't know that, but here's let me say this one thing. Um, the Congressional Management Foundation did a survey of 500 Hill staff in the last couple of years asking what is the most important way to get through to a member of Congress. Uh, and they said, if a member of Congress has not made up their mind on whatever it is, a face-to-face meeting with the member of Congress has the most influence, even more than a meeting with the lobbyist and so mm. this is a a, a a tally by um uh, of five hundred congressional staff uh, and so the question I would kind of put out in the ethos is, well, how many of us have had a meeting with uh our member of Congress in the last twelve months on something we care about? Well, the answer is probably not many. And then I add to that, well, go to results.org or citizensclimatelobby.org or peacealliance.org or fcnl.org and connect with one of their groups or action teams uh, that would support you in being one of those folks who gets the appointment, prepares for the appointment, and then it takes the appointment. Maybe I could tell you this story about this amazing woman in Virginia, who she said uh, she said before I joined CCL, I was suffering from climate trauma. I would read <laughs> Bill McKibben's book Earth, and I would weep at home, and I would weep yeah. at work. And, but then, eighteen months after joining CCL, I was co-leading a workshop and creating relationship with members of Congress and editorial writers. And she got on their call maybe four years ago, February. Amory Lovins was the conference call guest that month, mm-hmm. and then she came on, and she said well, in December, two months ago, this is like four and a half years ago. Uh, you, the executive director, said we're bar- betting the farm on relationships. Now, go get a relationship with your member of Congress. CCL might have been two or three (laughs) years old at the time. She said, well, our member of Congress is Eric Cantor, who just lost his seat a year ago, the House Majority Uh Leader at the time. And we couldn't get a meeting with Eric Cantor. We got a meeting with his legislative director. And she said, we had two two two-hour preparatory meetings. And one of the four of us that went and and had these prep meetings is a retired naval meteorologist. He brought more of the science. Another was an executive coach. He helped with the agendas. Another of the four of us was Fred, and Fred is Jewish. And the congressman's Jewish, and Fred's known for his baking, so he baked two challah breads for the meeting, (laughs) one for the congressman and one for the legislative director. And we went into the meeting with a flip chart, and we asked the legislative director, what are the congressman's values in the area of energy, economy, and environment? And we wrote them on the board as the ledge director was going over the congressman's values. At the end of the meeting, our first ever, the legislative director said, you're the most prepared group I have ever met with. And I uh-huh. said, I, I told this story to the heads of care, save the children, Oxfam. I said, you know, I think if I asked a normal climate activist to meet with Eric Cantor or his ledge director, I think they'd say, which wall do you want me to bang my head against? that wall over there or this (laughs) wall over here. I was in a meeting with the CEO of an environmental group with millions of members, and I told that story, but I didn't get to the wall-banging part. And the CEO Mm -hmm. looks at me and says, we wouldn't meet with the Eric Cantors of the world. And he cups his hands in front of him. He says, we'd meet with those who are with with us. And he rocks his hands back and forth. Or those we feel we could move, but we wouldn't meet with the Eric Cantors of the of the world. Which for for me was, which wall do you want us to bang our head against? Exactly. I will put my money on the groups that are meeting with the Eric Cantors of the world. And so again, you know, I just urge your listeners to um, find those groups that uh, those organizations that have. Support groups that can help people get from kindergarten to third, fifth, ninth, twelfth, and grade and beyond as citizens.
0: Indeed, indeed, that's beautiful. This is a story of how a challah bread, well baked, can exactly. help to reach the humanity, and that's where exactly. you're appealing. You're going beyond the political rift, which is yeah. madness. And you're reaching the yeah. heart of the person and the fundamental, let's say, integrity of the individual who is occupying that office, who has taken yeah. an oath of office not to yeah. uphold a corporation, but to uphold the, the opinions the common good. and the yeah. common good, thank you, of its yeah. con- his or her constituency. And that is the power of what it is you're bringing forward. It's ultimately an appeal to humanity,
1: and I think it's brilliant, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could close with this from George Bernard Shaw. This is the true joy in life, the being Uh used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force Uh of nature, instead of a selfish, feverish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world (laughs) will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I've got hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. Do you know you know that quote? No, I've never heard it in full like that. Yeah, this is the that true joy in
0: life. Awesome. Yeah, That is awesome. Sam Daly-Harris, I thank you so much for your good work and uh, for coming on to a better world with me again today and uh, sharing your vision and your experience that backs up that vision uh, as well as you have. I just want to continue to support the work you do. You know, here at A Better World and in our community, I often encourage people to, as they uh, budget time for meals every day and exercise and work for their livelihood, to budget time for leading their country and being citizens that are engaged daily in the work of their government on local, state, federal, whatever they feel drawn to, but to be paying attention to all these domains because it is our obligation and responsibility as it is to the health of our body, to the health of our nation. And I'm I'm rather pedantic about it, <laughs> and uh, perhaps yeah. stubborn and persistent at making this point over and over again. But I really yeah. feel that it should be part of the daily diet. Right. Uh, and and don't do it alone.
2: Much Find groups that will empower you.
1: Thanks. I'm sorry? Yeah. yeah, just don't do it alone. Find groups that will empower you. And do exactly, it exactly,
0: yeah. and you've helped to provide that, and we have a nice community here at a better world and i'm gonna this show will help to uh ring those bells, so thank you again, right. Sam, for all that you're doing, and I'll talk to you again soon, thank you, absolutely. Wow, well, I hope you got as much out of that as I did that is Sam Daly Harris the author of Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government. You know, we didn't go into the the depth of heartbreak, actually, that needs the healing, the depth of heartbreak and sadness and pain that any um, heart open person feels as he or she looks around the world at our nation and across the globe at the kinds of tragedies that are taking place in the domain of poverty as uh, Sam was talking about among children and for infant mortality rates educational issues human trafficking violence war on and on and on it just it seems like an endless river if not ocean of issues, and indeed, it really happens to be true, and it is happening because we, as Sam Well put it, allow it to happen, and it doesn't need to happen if we all take some time to be the active citizen of the planet. And we can start locally and we can stay local if we want. It will have reverberations that are planetary. No worry. But to stand up and speak your truth about those areas that resonate most inside you as you look around the world. And that beautiful quote that Sam uh, shared with us of George Bernard Shaw really makes it clear that each one of us is holding that torch, that light, and it is really our obligation. One of the things I love about uh, the Jewish tradition is they don't speak so much about rights. We are plagued with demanding that we have rights in this country. And oh, God knows, they are important. But I think a higher conversation is a conversation about our obligation. In the, uh, the Jewish perspective, it's referred to as the mitzvot, and those are very particular in that uh, more orthodox context. But in the more generic and even uh, secular context, uh, it is understood as, what can I do for you? I am obliged to participate in the larger public common conversation. And what can I bring here to the table? Just like when you go to a party, everybody brings something. And uh, in this case, we're bringing our gifts, our talents, our love, our passion, our values, and our ultimately commitment to this notion, however one interprets it, of creating a better world. So uh I just want to leave you all with that and thank you so much for listening in. Remember that A Better World is now a foundation unlimited and we are a non-profit 501c3 and any of your uh, gifts, which I actually consider more to be an investment in the future, uh, are most welcome because that's what keeps this voice alive on radio, on TV, and on online media. And uh, very obviously, this becomes a very important platform for sharing with you uh, such wonderful individuals and committed beings as Sam Daly-Harris and the host of other guests that we have had over the course of many, many years at this point, actually decades. So thank you again Get on our newsletter abetterworld.tv and it's free and we welcome you and your participation as well as your feedback Mjr at abetterworld.net is the email address to which to send your feedback, which is always appreciated and helps me shape better shows. So thank you again and I look forward to seeing you all next week.